Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, some former state lawmakers face corruption charges, but they're still receiving their pensions. We'll get a report. Government has made gambling a lot easier. In fact, you can do it on your phone. The result can lead more people to develop an addiction. We'll learn about a campaign to help raise awareness. The numbers don't lie. The climate in Illinois has become warmer and wetter. A climatologist will be along to discuss the changes. A newly elected congressman from the state will talk about energy policy. We'll also introduce you to a Rockford woman offering free sewing classes to her community. And what happens when kids can't ride the bus to school on frigid days? One man stepped up to help. Those stories and more on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. A steady stream of former Illinois lawmakers lost their jobs amid federal corruption charges, but not their state pensions. That group includes tax cheats, indicted former House Speaker Michael Madigan and his inner circle who are awaiting trial. Dave McKinney has more on how corruption has not cracked the retirement nest eggs for some past state officials. Former State Senator Terry Link was a government mole. He wore a wire on a fellow state lawmaker. Though he refused to admit it as reporters chased him through the state capitol in 2019. I'm not going to continuously answer this every day of my life. I'm down here to do a job that I was elected to do, and that's what I'm going to do. But that was in the state house. In the courthouse the following year, Link admitted to his own crime, that he didn't pay his share of state and federal taxes. Link had been using campaign contributions for personal expenses. There's a state law against using campaign money that way. Link even voted for it. But a panel with the power to revoke a lawmaker's retirement determined Link could keep his state pension. Attorney General Kwame Raoul said because Link's admitted wrongdoing, using campaign cash for personal expenses and the tax evasion that went along with that, didn't, quote, relate to his time as a state senator. That panel sided with Raoul's reasoning. All told, Link has cashed about $200,000 in state pension checks the past two years. House Republican leader Tony McCombie says her constituents would be outraged to learn they're the ones paying for Link's retirement benefit. They would definitely be appalled. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. You have corrupt legislators uh, collecting a pension that is paid for by them. WBEZ has documented nearly $2 million in pension payments to former Illinois legislators and ex-state officials ensnared in a sprawling federal corruption probe. Those payments also have gone to, in one case, a widow, and in another, an ex-wife. Included on that list is former Democratic State Representative Edward Acevedo. He also pleaded guilty to federal tax evasion. The state panel, again acting on Raul's advice, awarded Acevedo his state pension last year. Some of the more than $265,000 that Acevedo has received came while he was in federal prison. Told of WBEZ's findings, Democratic State Senator Mary Edley Allen says it's hard to grasp why felonious ex-lawmakers are drawing taxpayer-funded pensions. She favors barring anyone convicted of felonies from getting that benefit. We need to start over again and pass something that doesn't allow this to happen in the future. It's really a betrayal of public's trust. Another admitted wrongdoer is the late Democratic State Senator Martin Sandoval. Sandoval admitted pocketing more than $250,000 in bribes while in office and entered into a federal plea deal on bribery and tax evasion charges. I take full responsibility for my actions. 
I'm ashamed and I'm sorry. I want to apologize to the people of Illinois and to my constituents. But Sandoval died several months after his plea deal was announced, so he never was convicted of any felonies. That's one reason his widow is now drawing part of his legislative pension, close to $100,000 the past two years. Democratic Senator Robert Martwick chairs the state panel that oversees legislative pensions. Martwick says his board chose to follow the advice of the attorney general, and he doesn't think more legal deterrents are needed. Every one of those decisions, they never come easy. Martwick's panel could be busy in the future. Former House Speaker Michael Madigan is set for trial next year for racketeering, bribery, and conspiracy. He's gotten more than $200,000 in state pension payments since 2021. Several of Madigan's closest advisors, including former lobbyist Michael McLean, also face their own upcoming federal trials, and they've been drawing state pensions as well. McCombie and Republican State Representative Amy Elick want to stop these kinds of pension payments to ex-state officials under criminal indictment. But both say their pending legislation may need to be broadened given WBEZ's findings. Here's Elick. This is one more reason not to trust politicians. Raul's office and an attorney for Acevedo declined comment, and lawyers for Lincoln Sandoval didn't respond to multiple email inquiries from WBEZ. This is Dave McKinney. Amid soaring food costs, food banks and pantries are bracing for even higher demand. That's as Illinois SNAP benefits are set to drop to pre-pandemic levels. Jane Carlson has more. Illinois SNAP participants will see their monthly benefits cut anywhere from $55 to $255 per person come March. That's after food pantries supplied by Riverbend Food Bank already saw a 60% increase in demand last year because of rising food costs and supply chain issues. And with Iowa reducing SNAP benefits back to pre-pandemic levels last year, all of those factors contributed to an increase in folks who were seeking our help through our food pantries. That's Liz Deeroff, spokesperson for Davenport-based Riverbend. That organization supplies food pantries and other hunger relief programs in 23 counties in Illinois and Iowa from three warehouses including one that opened in Galesburg late last year to better serve West Central Illinois. But how Riverbend is getting food for their warehouses is changing too. Deeroff says last year they saw about a 40% decrease in the amount of food donated by manufacturers, distributors, and retailers in the region, which is typically a large portion of what they pass on to food pantries. We tell people, if you don't see it in the store, you know, we, we're seeing empty shelves here and there when you go to pick something at the grocery store. If you don't see it there, that means there's definitely not any extra that the business is going to donate to us. So Riverbend is now buying more bulk and wholesale food for pantries than ever before to keep up with the demand. They're doing so with careful planning and community donations. Deeroff says Riverbend is only able to keep people fed when communities work together, and that's been the case for the new Galesburg branch. For example, she says the Knox County Pork Producers Association has donated 1,100 meals worth of ground pork, and Galesburg-based Sika Salmon Shears has donated 1,600 meals worth of frozen, fresh seafood. I'm Jane Carlson. Recently elected Central Illinois Congressman Eric Sorensen says his background as a meteorologist will serve him well in one of his committee assignments. He was appointed to the Science, Space, and Technology Committee for his first term in Congress. 
The Moline Democrat spoke with Eric Stock. He says the role will help him shape energy policy, and it comes at a time when much of his district decides what to do with a controversial energy project. Well, we need to make sure that we're we're focused on um, on where we're going with respect to energy. Uh, I will be on the energy subcommittee uh, within uh, the Space Science and Technology um, Committee, um, and so we need to make sure that that we're moving in the right direction. Um, understanding that you know while we all you know and while environmentalists want to be able to to snap our fingers and and um, and go green, it's it's going to take a process. Um, and that process, you know, has to be a step by step. But we have to understand, you know, where where our strategy needs to be, where our focus needs to be, and we have to take the steps to get there. Um, you know, I talked to too many people um, in central Illinois where extreme weather is is having an impact. Um, I mean, just look at the um, insurance industry, for example. Um, more extreme weather events uh, mean that there is going to be, um, you know, more need for people to file claims. Uh, well, as as more people file claims, it's going to necessitate that that we pay more in premiums. Um, so we're all paying uh, for these extreme weather events. We need to make sure that we bring these costs down, but that's also meaning that we invest in doing the right things. And an issue that intersects with your role on the energy subcommittee and also agriculture is carbon capture. And there's a proposal or there's discussion of a proposal to build a CO2 pipeline through five states, including Illinois, and that would cut through a large stretch of your congressional district. There's little local control for the permitting of these pipelines. What do you want to see at the federal level? Well, I think that we under, need to understand um, the the impact of carbon capture. Uh, we need to understand that you know that carbon dioxide is the number one. Um, contributor to to man-made climate change. Um, now we need to look at all of the different ways that we can reduce this number. Um, carbon capture is is one piece of it. Um, however, what I would like to people to think about is while this is a a, a piece moving forward um, that we need to to look at, the concerns that I have, not just as as a congressman, uh, not just as a meteorologist. Uh, and not just as a as a resident of, of Western Illinois, um, it's safety. We have to make sure um, that safety is at the forefront uh, before we just allow the the dirt to be dug up, the pipelines to be put down, um, and then tackling the issue. And then also with that final understanding, Eric, it's it's looking at um, you know what were we able to accomplish in the end? Was it enough? Uh, was it just a drop in the bucket? So will you look for certain controls or certain ways to regulate these pipelines or they just should not happen at all? Absolutely. We need to, um, you know, much like there needs to be, you know, uh, you know, more regulation with respect to to any sort of pipeline. Um, but, you know, the uh, well, you know, if a, a, a crude liquid crude pipeline bursts, I mean, we can see the impact immediately and we can clean it up. Um, and it's a it's an environmental hazard and a tragedy every time that happens. Um, but the thing that I worry about with carbon dioxide is um, it's an almost immediate um, emitter of carbon dioxide that that will not only kill humans, um, but it kills all living beings around that. And, you know, and I think that we need to make sure that the regulation is there, um, especially since it's going through the, the family farm fields 
of, of uh, central and western Illinois. Are the regulations that you would support enough to say these pipelines are safe to be installed? Yeah, I, I think we have to look at the precedent uh, to be sure, Eric. You know, I, I look back at the um, uh, at the catastrophe that happened in Mississippi a few years ago um, with the carbon dioxide pipeline that broke. Um, you know, I look at, you know, as, as somebody who understands risk assessment, uh, we have to look at what is the risk of a calamity should it happen um, after we build these and then look at everything that we can do to make sure that this is safe. But then again, it's looking at what was the end result? Was the end result worth um, building these in the first place? As we continue with uh, Congressman Eric Sorensen, going back to Congress, Republicans have called for spending cuts. Now, apparently, Social Security and Medicare seem to be off the table. The House Speaker has said as much. Are there other areas where federal spending you believe uh, could be trimmed or may need to be trimmed this year? I think we need to understand and and look at what's happening with the debt ceiling coming up and really take a close look at this. Um, the debt ceiling coming up is no different um, than my credit card bill that was just mailed to me and went into the mailbox. And it says that I owe for my debts by this date. Um, we have an obligation in the federal government to pay our debts because these were already spent, okay? Now, there's a complete budgetary process um, which determines how the funds from the federal government are spent. Um, and that was agreed to. That was agreed to back in December at the end of the 117th Congress. So the fact now that we are looking at the possibility of defaulting on our debt, um, that's incredibly dangerous. That the Biden administration has lowered our debt by $1.7 trillion. So we have lowered um, our debt and our spending. Um, and the fact now that that um, extreme Republicans want to make this a political football, um, I think that's incredibly dangerous. And we need to make sure that we we push back against that and, and we pay our debts just like um, as hard as it is for us, we pay our credit card bills every month. Polls have suggested that even a majority of Democrats do not want to see Joe Biden run for re-election when he would be 86 years old at the end of the second term. Do you want to see President Biden run for re-election? Look, I, I think this is a, a decision that people will make at the ballot box. Um, I make my decision um, based on the results. Uh, looking at what has happened in, in Congress in the past two years, with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the Infrastructure Act, with the Chips and Science Act. These were bipartisan bills um, that made it through um, the House, the Senate, and made it to the president's desk. And, and now, going forward, these are the things now that we need to make sure uh, the funding gets to the shovel-ready pro uh, projects. Um, that's, that's going to be my job, to make sure that I'm fighting uh, for Illinois 17, to make sure that we bring the funds right here. Uh, from these um, historic acts. I mean, we've, we've never had a, uh, for instance, um, you know, climate change addressed um, like it has been. Um, and so those are some of the things that I look at um, when, when I look at who uh, I determine should be the president of the United States. But look, um, this is a decision that has to be made by the people, um, much like the people here um, determined that, you know, I should be the one 
to to go to Washington and and represent every person here because I don't just represent the fifty two percent of the people that voted for me. Um, I represent the forty eight percent as well. And as you said, people ultimately make the choice. But if even people in the president's own party are not uh, excited about him running for reelection, he ends up winning the primary, presuming that no one else in the party will challenge an incumbent president. Does that leave the Democratic Party vulnerable to losing in 2024? Well, I, I think that's a, you know, speaking generally, um, you know, I certainly have not heard um, any of my colleagues um, have any reservations. Um, you know, especially after, you know, the, the State of the Union address. Um, I thought the, the president was exemplary. Um, you know, looking at how he was able to talk with the American people, have that conversation with the American people, and to be able to essentially um, take Social Security and Medicare cuts off the table, um, basically negotiate with the Republicans uh, on the other side of the chamber um, during the State of the Union address, um, that was masterful. Um, but, you know, also we need to make sure that those uh, cuts never happen, uh, that we have uh, our representative in Congress and we have a president um, in the White House that is going to fight for the people to make sure that the Social Security benefits, the Medicare benefits, the Medicaid benefits stay where they need to stay. That's the Congressman Eric Sorensen, and he spoke with Eric Stock. We've got more ahead on Statewide. Stick around. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Half of the kids who go to Lewis Libin Elementary School in Rockford can't take a bus. Especially in the cold months of winter, many of those students don't make it to class at all. Peter Medlin has more on a community member trying to help. I'm walking in the snow right now outside of Lewis Lemon Elementary School in Rockford. I'm not going to lie to you, it's pretty cold outside right now. It, uh, with the wind chill, it feels like negative four. And every day, there's kids at this school that live within a mile and a half that can't take the school buses, and so they have to try to find a ride or, I guess, walk. But as you can imagine, it being negative four, it's not something elementary school kids should be doing. 170 elementary schoolers at Lewis Lemon don't have a school bus. That's half of the whole school. And you can see that in the school's attendance numbers. 84% of Lewis Lemon students were chronically absent last year, meaning that they missed at least 18 days of school. For context, their chronic absentee rate is nearly triple the state average. In the winter, when temperatures can dip below zero in the morning, attendance gets worse. Lewis Lemon principal Alicia Jones says not all parents have transportation, and the school sometimes gets calls from them saying it's too cold for their child to walk. John Brantley wants to make sure these kids have a ride. Some folks in the Rockford community know him as Brother John. And for the past two years, Brantley has used his own van to take Lewis Lemon students to and from school. Sometimes, if he can, he takes them to the library or other local events, too. And it started with just a few students. But this fall, Principal Alicia Jones asked him if he could start taking more. I got uh, 16 kids today. And is that about normal? Is it, you said uh, I get like average between 20 and 25 kids every day. His group of 16 stands against the front of the school wearing colorful winter coats and hats. And John reminds them not to stand in the snow while they wait for everyone to get ready to leave. I got them all. We can walk towards the van. Hey, y'all, come on. The kids walk towards the van. Only, it's not John's van this time. Because a few weeks ago, his 2004 Honda Odyssey broke down. The timing belt snapped. It'll cost $1,600 to replace. And that's $1,600 he doesn't have. 
So for now, he's been borrowing vehicles to keep getting kids to school and home after. The day I'm with John is the last day he can use a bus from the Rockford Housing Authority. You guys ride uh, every day in this bus with Mr. John here? Yeah. Yeah. Several churches have also let him borrow their vans, although he has to pay for gas, and there are some days they can't let him use it. Some days I miss, like Monday. I couldn't get the housing authority or the church van. Only two of them made the school, and the other 25 didn't. So the school noticed a big difference. At this point, he has 30 kids on his list. So depending on the van, he has to make multiple trips. And many of those kids live in public housing. 70% of kids at Lewis Lemon Elementary qualify as low income. But why isn't the school taking them? Well, officials from the Rockford Public Schools Transportation Department say part of the reason is that they still have a shortage of bus drivers. They say, quote, with more drivers, we could potentially increase the district's ability to provide additional support to families who need it. Or why not help out Brantley financially? Well, John says he's hopeful the school district will help him get a grant to assist with the cost of his work. But RPS officials say the district doesn't write or offer grants. Brantley also spoke at a recent city council meeting asking for sponsors to help him repair his van. He may get a new one too, but it's been hard to let go of his old van. He says when his mom passed away, she left him some money to keep helping in the community, which he used on the van. But new van or not, one of the things he lives by is, as he puts it, ask not what your community can do for you, but what you can do for your community. Instead of complaining about what the school's not doing, the parents not getting their kids to school, I just say, hey, we're going to get these kids to school one way or the other. Fixing the van or getting a new one is his top priority, but someday he'd like to help even more Rockford kids get to and from school. Lewis Lemon certainly isn't the only RPS school that struggles with chronic absences, and he's already got a half dozen other schools on his radar if he can get the funds. I'm Peter Medlin. The pandemic normalized remote working, and for a rural America struggling with declining population, that could open the door to attracting new residents whose jobs aren't tied to a physical location. But Norm Walzer, founder of the Illinois Institute for Rural Affairs at Western Illinois University, says that's not likely to happen without communities taking action. So this has really opened opportunities for more remote areas. But those opportunities aren't going to just happen. It's a question of we have to help the people figure out what are their opportunities, what are their assets, and then get an action plan to make it work. That would include things like ensuring broadband internet access is affordable and dependable and building out the right amenities and infrastructure to make a rural community an attractive place to live. While the Illinois climate is getting warmer and wetter over time, a 2021 assessment by the Nature Conservancy found average daily temperatures have increased by 1 to 2 degrees Fahrenheit over the past 120 years. That might not seem like much, but it can have a huge impact. Precipitation is also up. Trent Ford is the Illinois State climatologist, and he spoke about the changes with Tim Shelley in Peoria. Illinois has gotten warmer and wetter over the last 100 years, and uh, when we look at model projections of the future, they suggest that that kind of warmer and wetter trend is likely to continue through the, through the end of the 21st century. And what does that mean exactly? Like, I know we say warmer, like, if, if, if I say it's going to be like a degree, a degree and a half warmer 
uh, on average, you know, so it doesn't sound like very much. I mean, what's what's the actual effect of that? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's the thing is that when we look at global warming, uh, as well as kind of regional scale warming, like what we've experienced here in Illinois, it, it's not a, a lot of warming when we think about the difference between that and, and say, day-to-day temperature variability, for example. You know, yes, today's high is going to be 20 degrees warmer than tomorrow's high, and we've only increased the, the state of Illinois a degree and a half Fahrenheit in the last hundred years. But because we're talking about a statewide average, a large area, and that's the average temperature, that increase is is really representing a tremendous increase in energy stored. And that's a global issue, but of course the regional climates follow suit. And so what that does is it changes sort of the baseline climate onto which the weather sort of operates. And so what that means is it changes our extremes. So we think about the acute sort of impacts, including weather extremes that come along with with uh, with climate change. So even that degree or degree and a half Fahrenheit increase can mean, let's say, 20, 30, 40 percent more uh, in precipitation intensity or heavy rainfall events, for example, which have their own impacts, of course, for flooding and agriculture and urban planning. Uh, that, that degree or degree and a half Fahrenheit warming could mean, you know, between 10 and 20 additional days over 95 degrees uh, in the summertime for Peoria. So, you know, the, these sorts of impacts come from those extremes, but also from what I kind of call the, the chronic changes. So that background warming, especially in the wintertime, um, you know, we're not talking about winter heat waves or anything like that, despite how, how mild this last winter or this last month has been. Um, but the, the background warming in winter uh, really changes, it, it can change the profile of our, for example, natural ecosystems. Uh, because a lot of the the native plants uh, and and animals, the flora and fauna, you know, have adapted to the climate we have now. And in in many cases, the winter temperatures are sort of the limiting factor, one of the limiting factors of of what species can uh, survive here and which which ones can thrive. And so, seeing uh, a slew of invasive or non-native species of plants and animals coming on, and that those sorts of impacts are less, let's say. Um, you know, camera uh, uh, worthy than um, the, you know, the, the larger flooding events, things like that. But they're impactful nonetheless when we think about different uh, differences in, um, you know, a pollinator species and, um, you know, impacts from uh, different types of insect pests for agriculture and things like that. So, yeah, the, the actual number or the amount of warming, I, I kind of don't report that often, very often. Now, it's in the assessment because it's, you know, it's an important number. But, uh, but often that can sort of seem, like you mentioned, very small. Uh, but the what that kind of represents is actually much larger. And you mentioned several things I want to uh, dig a little bit deeper into there, but starting with those precipitation numbers you're talking about, 40% more precipitation. Of course, we're right here on the Illinois River, so we're used to seeing some flooding, but with that much more precipitation, we're talking more flooding, more extreme flooding. I mean, that, that's a big change potentially. Yeah, so the actual total amount of rainfall is about four or five inches more than what we were, let's say, the, 20, the turn of the 20th century. The, the kind of the 20 to 40% increase is, as I was talking about, is, is it kind of the extreme end of precipitation. So a, an increase in the very extreme forms of rainfall. Um, and yeah, that, that's sort of, that's what we're seeing is that those types of heavy rainfall events are becoming more frequent and more intense. Um, and so they have flooding, like you mentioned, along our large river systems like the Illinois River, and that is problematic. But to get the Illinois River to to spike, to flood, to overtop uh, a lot of the critical thresholds before we see you know downtown Peoria flooded, um, it really takes a, a lot of rain over a relatively large area because the Illinois River drains a very large area, uh, and that does happen. We see an increase in, in 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 precipitation during the spring, for example, for much of the Midwest that can create that sort of long term flooding. One of the more acute problems, though, is with this it, really heavy, intense rainfall events is sort of the the uh, what's called the pluvial or the 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 urban type of flooding event, where it's not necessarily flooding in a floodplain, 
uh, that we've mapped out that hopefully we've built resilience into by not allowing a lot of residential or commercial development in, things like that. But it's instead, just a, a, a large amount of precipitation over a relatively small area for a very short period of time that overwhelms our stormwater drainage uh, infrastructure and floods out uh, residential or commercial areas. We saw that in 2020 in the summertime. I think it was July of 2020 here in Peoria where they got five to six inches in just a number of hours. Um, and it didn't, it's not, that's not enough rain over a small period of time, over a short period of time to, to flood the Illinois River. But what instead we see is neighborhoods well off of the river flooded because the stormwater drainage systems just can't handle that. They're not built for that. This is uh, affecting areas that have not been mapped because they're not in floodplains. So the risk of, of these areas to flooding is not necessarily as well quantified as, as what we have for, for um, riverine flooding, for example, where again, we've, you know, ideally, and the state of Illinois has done a good job of doing this, is mapping those out and, and building resilience and thereby not allowing a lot of development in those floodplains. So when people think about climates, past, present, and future here, and, and they see things are getting wetter, they're getting warmer, um, I think sometimes it's hard for people to really, because it happens so slowly, right? It's, it's hard for people to actually really take those effects in. Sometimes you might hear somebody say, well, it seems like winter's a little less extreme maybe than it was when I was a kid 30, 40 years ago, but it, it's kind of hard to really wrap your head around it sometimes. How, mm -hmm. how do you as a uh, kind of an educator and an expert really kind of help do that? Yeah, well, you know, I think that uh, part of it is that everybody has their own perspectives um, and their own kind of way of coming to this, these ideas. Some of these things we've been talking about, like these, these, these slow changes, are really hard to, to demonstrate. And we can't have the hard data to do it, but study after study after study uh, in our off kind of ne neglected social sciences uh, says that data is not what demonstrates, right, the, the, the climate change to people. It's not what makes the point. It's, it's these experiences. And so um, uh, often the things like we just talked about, seeing an armadillo, and, and growing up, you know, I grew up in the Peoria area, and I never saw an armadillo. So seeing a dead armadillo on the side of the road near Pekin is, is weird. It's, it's very strange to me. Um, uh, seeing, for example, flooding of areas that had never flooded before, or at least not to that extent. Um, you know, seeing uh, the, the intensity of the rainfall. And I'll tell you, I mean, I was going around the state talking to lots of people with lots of ideas, different ideas about what climate change may or may not be. The, the most nods come from... It, rainfall intensity. I say rainfall is just getting more intense, and I don't have to show any data to prove that. People are just like, yes, we've experienced that. We know that. Um, and so those types of experiences, even as, like the example of the armadillo, they may not be necessarily the most impactful, uh, uh, you know, the most impactful part of climate change in Illinois, but they are making folks kind of realize that, hey, some of these things that we've heard are are, are coming true, you know, are, are, are there. Kate uh, makes people kind of perk up a little bit more. And indeed, you know, all of those Studies that the Yale Climate, um, you know, the Climate Institute or whatever they have there at Yale um, uh, shows is that more and more people are coming to not just the point that, okay, they believe in climate change, um, for, for lack of a better term to put it, but they're also, um, they, they think that climate change does actually cause impacts. Um, and, and so we're seeing more and more, uh, a larger percentage of the American populace come to that point. And so now I really, the conversation anymore is, I mean, there's still, you know, areas, corners where really the conversation is, you know, trying to convince somebody that climate change is real, but anymore, a lot of the conversation is, is around, okay, great. It's going on. What do we do with it? How, how do we, how do we, how do we make these changes? How do we do something to, to ensure that we, um, that we're healthier and, 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 uh, and wealthier than we were um, before in, in the face of climate change? That's the Illinois State Climatologist Trent Ford speaking with Tim Shelley. The next time you go to your kitchen, check the labels on your food. You might find a small statement or symbol that says bioengineered. 
A year ago, the U.S. began to mandate food manufacturers, importers, and retailers make that disclosure if a food or substantial ingredient has been genetically modified. Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikus looks at what, if any, impact it's had. It doesn't take long to find a food or a food product with some mention of bioengineering on it. For example, here in my freezer, I have these soy-based chicken patties. And on the back of the packaging, there's a small circle symbol that says bioengineered. Before the mandate went into effect, the U.S. Department of Agriculture did a presentation explaining the standard's purpose. We can increase transparency in our food system and give consumers information about the bioengineered status of their foods. The USDA's national standard for labeling bioengineered foods came about in response to states passing or proposing their own legislation. It was meant to avoid a patchwork of regulations. It covers 13 crops and foods that are GMOs. That's genetically modified organisms that have had their DNA altered in a lab to give them certain traits. Take note of four crops on the list. Corn, canola, soybeans, and sugar beets. Most of those crops in the U.S. are genetically modified, says William Hallman with Rutgers University's Department of Human Ecology. We make so many ingredients out of those particular crops. Much of what Americans eat has an ingredient from a GMO crop, like foods that have high fructose corn syrup. But Holman says this is where the regulations get tricky, because not all those bioengineered ingredients have detectable genetic material, meaning they don't fall under the USDA standard. It complicates things immensely. The question is, so what is the law intended to do? The law is intended to disclose and make transparent to consumers, you know, what it is that they are eating. Critics like the Center for Food Safety and some grocery stores and food advocacy groups challenged the USDA in court over the exclusion of many products from the standard. A federal court largely upheld it. Natural Grocers was one of the parties that sued. The Colorado-based retail chain sells organic produce. Natural Grocers' Alan Lewis says the bioengineered labeling is too narrow and was designed to confuse people by using the term bioengineered instead of GMO. A shopper that cares about non-GMO and protecting planet, environment, and, and their family's health isn't using that as a source of reliable, consistent information. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has concluded GMOs are safe to eat. For consumers, it's difficult to know if they're aware of the disclosure standard. Brian Ronholm is the director of food policy for Consumer Reports. He says people care about GMOs, but the USDA standard uses the term bioengineered and only requires a statement in small print or a small symbol. It should be labeled more clearly so it's very easy for consumers to understand would the wording or size of the labeling make any difference? Erin Adalja is one of the co-authors of a Cornell University study on a now-defunct GMO labeling law in Vermont. He says the discussions during the legislative process influenced consumer habits more than the actual labeling. And, he says, that's likely the case with the national standard, too. We don't expect there to be a big blip in, you know, a big drop in GMO demand or a big change in demand. Ultimately, it's up to consumers to read the fine print and make their own choices about what foods they eat. I'm Katie Pikus, Harvest Public Media. There's more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. A Rockford woman is fulfilling her brother's wishes by offering free sewing classes to the community. Yvonne Booz tells us more. 
Ruben's Pharmacy served the Rockford community for over 40 years. The establishment is now known as Cleta's Stay and Soap. Two main, 19 by 21. Ruben Samuel Jr. and his sister Colita Berryhill, who goes by Cleta, ran the drugstore. Samuel died from pancreatic cancer in 2019. Berryhill says she made a promise to her ailing brother. I asked him, what was I, what was I to do with the building? And he said, um, just use it for your passion. He said, don't stop quilting, don't stop sewing. And I said, oh, okay. But he said, um, and you know we're in this neighborhood where no one has any money. And I said, oh, I know that. And he said, well, don't charge for those classes. And Berryhill is keeping her word. She's offering free sewing classes. Robbie Webster is taking part in a class that meets on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. She irons her material as she prepares to make a tote bed. This is the lining, and uh, that's our first project here. Webster says she heard about the class through a friend who works at the Rockford Public Library. Webster knows how to sew, but says she wants to expand her craft. Oh, I don't make a coat, maybe, or something like that, you know. But uh, you can always pick up something. I don't know everything now. And something she thought she knew, well, she was doing them wrong. Webster says taking the class allows her to socialize. Mm -hmm. Carolyn Davis is also familiar with the craft, but she isn't used to the modern sewing machine. I'm from old school. I'm, this machine is just too up to date for me. <laughs> Davis? set with a square piece of material and practice the different stitches on the updated appliance. I've been uh, watching Kalita outfits and they are so beautiful. And I used to say, gosh, if I can make something like that, you know. The machines are new, but I believe I can because I used to make my own clothes. Barry Hill has other plans for the shop. One of them includes offering a sewing summer camp for children. She says she also has another passion that she wants to pass on. How to quilt and, and how you can be so creative in your quilting and what you can make that'll last for years and generations to come. Her grandmother taught her how to quilt. The main source of funds from the shop has come from Berry Hill Savings. She does sell retail items in the store, but those sales are used to pay utilities. She's also received fabric, furniture, and sewing machines as gifts, but she needs more support to make her full vision come to life. I just need donations, monetary donations, because as you can see, I have all the fabric that I need, but I just need more support. Davis says free sewing classes are a wonderful opportunity for community youth. It would get them off the streets. It would make the young men and women, because I think men could learn how to sew as well. And benefit from this. I mean, it's in an underdeveloped area. In addition to the summer camp, Berry Hill wants the shop to be a place where artists come to showcase their work. This includes poets. I always have been intrigued with the spoken word. I forgot about the young guy. He's a celebrity. Maybe you can help me with him. But he used to be on HBO and he did the spoken word. Barry Hill was referring to Russell Simmons, who presented Deaf Poetry Jam. Barry Hill plans to have a Black History celebration for the community. Those who attend will need to wear African attire. More information can be found on the shop's Facebook page. Oh, that's a different stitch. That's a different stitch. I'm Yvonne Bruce.
You're listening to Statewide. Reporter Maureen McKinney recently interviewed Shane Cook, director of the Gateway Foundation's Gambling Disorder Program. They talked about the Illinois Department of Human Services launch of its new campaign, Are You Really Winning? It aims to bring awareness of gambling problems and encourages people to seek help. The Illinois Department of Human Services recently launched a new campaign. It's a campaign. It's a marketing campaign uh, to create awareness. And the state works with many agencies uh, within the state that are offering gambling disorder programs. It's really a good opportunity for everyone to standardize on the messages that are going out within the various communities across the state to ensure that we're consistent in our messaging and it gives us the opportunity to partner with the state, partner with other agencies in delivering these services and also doing community-based events. That campaign, is it a response to the increased opportunities to gamble in Illinois over the last few years? Well, certainly Illinois has seen an increase in the opportunity. Uh, And the one thing that I typically focus in on is the access uh, for gambling as is at a an all-time high. When you think about casinos moving into communities uh, where it's closer to the people, you have online sports betting, which essentially puts a casino in everybody's pocket because you can access it via apps on your phone and place wagers and bets that way. It really makes sense to have some messaging that I guess, probably the best way to put it, having messaging that can respond to the number of ads that we all see on TV if you're watching a sporting event or even any other program, you're likely to see some advertising about a casino or uh, these online gambling apps for sports. I think people have uh, been inundated with commercials about the accessibility for gambling and it's good to have a, a response from the state that's coordinated that each of the agencies can leverage that messaging and go out and create their own campaigns. Can you talk about how serious the gambling problem is in Illinois and whether it's gotten worse with the increased opportunities? Recently, Uh, the state conducted a prevalence study where they went out and interviewed multiple people across the state just to get a sense for how prevalent gambling is within various communities. The initial report, and this is the first time it's been done, the initial report was released earlier in 2022, and it indicated that between 10 and 11 percent of the population in Illinois is either experiencing problem gambling or is at very high risk to developing a problem a problem gambling disorder. It is serious. It affects over a million people, a million residents within the state, and it is something that requires a concerted effort to get the message out and help people realize that there are services available to them, agencies that like Gateway Foundation that they can go to and seek treatment. Is problem gambling on the rise 
as the opportunities to gamble have increased? I think it's early to tell uh, at this point because we the state had the first study. It's the first study that's ever been done on gambling that was released earlier in 2022 to measure if there's any rise or an increase would require uh, the next study. Uh, and I, I don't have a date for when that will occur, uh, but I do know that the state has plans to conduct this study again as a, as a means of follow-up. Is there something about a person's background that make them more at risk for gambling disorder? I get that quite frequently. And, and the reality is, just like with substance use and substance abuse, uh, it can really cut across any dynamic or any uh, demographic. It can affect anybody as young as teenage years all the way into um, their later years in life. Many times we'll find that individuals with a gambling disorder also have a co-occurring disorder uh, with substance abuse. There's a high percentage of people that carry a dual uh, diagnosis. So it made sense for us to get into the gambling arena, focus on gambling disorder treatment. The same way, it can it can affect people differently. I would be hard-pressed to point to one particular attribute that somebody has that would indicate that this person might be at high risk. It's more so, how is that individual treating gambling? And And then we get into some of the discussion that we typically have about gambling in terms of identifying some of the signs that somebody may have a gambling problem. Gambling disorder is very tricky in terms of, and when I say tricky, it's one of those disorders that is hidden. You don't necessarily see it immediately from somebody, whereas with substance abuse, typically there are some visual signs that you would see. With gambling disorder, it's a little more hidden, or it is hidden. I shouldn't say it's a little more hidden. It's it's hidden. People will, again, try to hide it from friends and family. But some of the signs that people can look for are, is that person constantly borrowing money, asking family and friends, or seeking other alternatives to borrow money when typically you wouldn't think that person needed to borrow money? Uh, are they withdrawing from family and friends? Are they reclusive and constantly on their phone, especially when you're in a family gathering situation where that person previously had been very engaging with everybody? One thing with sports gambling, I think, is a, a tip-off is if an individual is watching a game that is relatively meaningless, meaning it's not their favorite team, it just happens to be some random teams that they're watching, and the emotions sway from high to low, that might be an indicator that there is some betting going on with that particular game. What happens to the person physically when you win a gambling situation. We talked about the euphoria that an individual can experience uh, with a win. Uh, it's, it's very similar to um, a, a dopamine rush, uh, if you've heard that term before. Um, it, it does affect the brain. The brain seeks to replicate that. 
So uh, an individual that's, or that's involved in gambling will experience that sense of euphoria with a win. And sometimes that's the worst thing to happen for somebody that is a problem gambler because that begins the process of the chase and that individual is going to continue to cycle through and, and try and obtain that euphoria more and more uh, going forward. So it becomes very compulsive, very compelling, uh, and the cycle begins. Is it a position of the Gateway Foundation that people should abstain from gambling? That is not a position that we take. Uh, in fact, the majority of people can gamble and gamble responsibly and treat it as a form of entertainment. The guidelines that I typically talk about when it's a matter of entertainment, the, the real key is to establish a budget, just like you would with any other form of entertainment. And if you plan to wager as that entertainment, stick to your budget. Once you've exceeded it, it's time to walk away and come back another day. If people have a gambling disorder, what can they do to get help? One of the ways they can get help is to call the Gateway Foundation hotline for gambling, which is 844-975-DONE. Uh, that will put you in contact with a counselor, um, run through a screening process, which is a series of questions to determine if this is something that may need some further exploration. The other thing, in partnership with the state, uh, they also have an 800 hotline. So that one, uh, you'll probably see some more as this campaign rolls out, is 1-800-GAMBLER. Same process, you call that number, you're in touch with a counselor. Uh, that counselor may refer to the Gateway Foundation or any of the other agencies that are providing these services across the state. That's Shane Cook, director of the Gambling Disorder Program at the Gateway Foundation, and he spoke with reporter Maureen McKinney. That's all the time we have for Statewide this week. We'll be back next time with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find this episode and others at the station's website, and you can also listen to our podcast through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois, with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations. Bye.